You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Clear the mechanism, one and all. It's time for Be Real, your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast. My name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we are gathered here on this lovely early spring Sunday, though you'll hear, you'll, you're hearing it later in the week, right before baseball season kicks off. We're talking about one of the most ready-made categories. You know, some categories we fight for, Noah. You and I will G-chat back and forth for days to hash it out. And some right. of them are just sitting right there in a, in a three-pack. What are we talking Absolutely. about today? In the bargain bin of our <laughs> podcast genre, uh, we're digging out the, you know, three for nine ninety nine uh, pack of Kevin Costner baseball movies. So that, of course, means we're discussing Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, and For Love of the Game. I cannot tell you how many times I've put an extra the in there. It's just For Love of the Game. The For Love of the Game? No. <laughs> <laughs> It's not for the love of the game, it's for love of the game. Because there wasn't right. enough room on the baseball at the end for him to put an extra the. He could have just like put a carrot on it and put it at the top. That would have been nice. Anyway, and no better person to join us, I feel, than the beat writer for the Houston Astros in the Houston Chronicle, one Hunter Atkins, who... Yes. Yeah, I approached this guy once to uh, do a book project... And he told me to fuck myself, but we <laughs> got, you know, sort of friendly via email. And I asked him if he'd do this and he, he left at the chance. And I think the results were stunning. I had a great time talking to him. He only told me to fuck myself a couple times. Just that kind of guy. Gotta love him for it. Um, I kid. Yeah, it we'll was really to, fun. It sounded really fun. I wish I could have been there just laughing and contributing nothing. So we're going to talk to Hunter in between our discussions of Bull Durham and Field of Dreams, since those are the movies that he centers his opinions on. Uh, but we're going to start with Bull Durham, right? Yeah, let's go chronological. So 1988, Ron Shelton, director of such, um, let's call them almost neo neoclassic sports movies as White Men Can't Jump and Tin Cup. And, Which also uh, stars Kevin Costner. Right. Uh, and this... Bull Durham, which is set contemporarily to when the movie contemporary to when the movie came out in the Carolina Leagues, which was it minor minor? Is it what what are we talking about here? Well, it seems like high A ball to me. Okay. There's the expertise I need. But it also like it's affiliated enough with like a major league club that you can be called up to the show at any moment, it seems like. Yes, yeah. But then there's also sort of these aged men like Kevin Costner crash uh, sort of languishing uh, but still making a go at it in some capacity yeah but like apparently yeah a decent place to like stash a troubled prospect oh definitely like Tim Robbins absolutely who plays in one of the all-time great sports movie names Ebby Nuke Lelouch right very good. And every um, time he introduces himself, everyone's like, bro, you got to get a nickname. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's uh, a hard-throwing pitcher 
who cannot control where he puts the ball and he's or also his, or his penis oh, he's also a moron so that's why he that's how he finds himself down here but ebby uh, nuke lelouch is not our way into this story our way into this story is annie who pl- is played by susan sarandon who lives in durham the team in question is the durham bulls and hunter has a comparison coming up that i will not spoil but what she does is she's just basically this like townsperson who she, we find out teaches in the community college at night, but otherwise is a baseball fanatic who... She's tried all the other religions. She's tried all the other religions. Yes, this is part of her her sexual taking on of one partner per baseball season is presented as part of her spiritual journey um, through the church of baseball. And why not? I'm in. For love of the game. <laughs> I um, feel like all three of these movies could be titled For Love of the Game. Absolutely. Actually, probably any of these titles, well, not Bull Durham. Why is it called? I mean, they're the Durham Bulls, but why call it Bull Durham? I didn't get that. It's so like very David Mamet Ian for a movie that's, that's otherwise like a pretty broad comedy. Sure, sure. Um, but can we talk about how similar like the opening to this movie is as to the witches of Eastwick? Yeah. Maybe it's just cause it's Susan Sarandon there, but it's like, here's an idyllic small town where like people talk and minor league baseball is the thing. And a handsome stranger comes to town. Right. There's all these like religious undertones. And now we have like this psychosexual comedy. After 12 years in the minor leagues, I don't try out. Besides, uh, I don't believe in quantum physics when it comes to matters of the heart. Sometimes love can't explain. Have you ever been tired of Come on, fire one in here. This is ridiculous. I'm a professional. It still remains a mystery to me. That's hot. So Annie is faced with the choice over whether she will make her season-long partner. And the baseball player to whom she thinks she gives kind of a mystical confidence, and apparently true, um, she has to decide between Nuke and Crash Davis, played by Kevin Costner, who is the you know minor league journeyman catcher who's been brought onto the team specifically to get this guy to throw some strikes and stop being such an idiot. Right. He's a real, like, sexualized John Flaherty or something. (laughs) Just jumping from club to club, just catching whomever. I mean, this movie doesn't really have a plot beyond that. Yeah, I mean, it's a movie that just kind of, like, shuffles its way around over the course of a baseball season. And there's a love triangle. I mean, the, the movie sort of quickly supposes and then ultimately forgets about the situational setup that presumably uh, Crash has been sent to this team specifically to mature, to, like, facilitate the maturation of Nuke. Right. Because, like, what's wrong with him is, like, he just, like, he's a baby and he needs to be toughened up a little bit before he can go up to the show. Right. So their fates are sort of intrinsically entwined. So when, I won't spoil it, but, like, so when their fates sort of, I mean, when nature takes its obvious course like what do you then do with kevin costner who like no longer has a role should we talk a little bit about like the baseball here as a way in i mean you got to start with either the baseball or the sex 
both are wonderfully choreographed, I think. Um, and there's a lot of both. Yes, indeed. Um, actually, the, the baseball is better choreographed than the sex, if I'm being honest. Well, the baseball is pretty good. Yeah. I really, I mean, Ron Shelton, have you seen White Men Can't Jump? I have not. He directs basketball as though it's like transified ballet. I mean, he really has an idea of like how to film sports that is not your like Sam Raimi, you know, speed up the ball and cut to the announcers kind of thing. Um, he gets to some psychological level, I think. And you get that with like the cam that follows uh, Costner out to the mound when he comes to talk to Nuke or Nuke when he's like in his own head. I really like the way the movie's filmed. Yes. And it's filmed very like it's filmed like it feels like baseball. Like I feel with some of the other ones, Field of Dreams is not really concerned with the game itself. And then like for love of the game, like Sam Raimi clearly like is only like tangentially familiar with baseball. <laughs> right. And this one feels like this is what is a the baseball that it does show is made for the reasons that people would watch like a baseball game. Like the goofy little like like the dumb shit that happens. Like the cash drop is a great like minor league yes. stunt. Yeah, that's like really co- and it it has all these it can be cheesy and sort of hokey because it's the minor leagues and the stakes are so low. Yeah. And I think Costner really shines to the way he this movie lets him do like really kind of like mouth off which is like an interesting look for him that I'm not sure has worked in any other Costner movie. You can disagree with me if you think it doesn't work here. But I lo- the axiom that I particularly love is when he like he goes and tells him to calm down and just throw the curveball that I asked for. And then he heads back for the plate, turns back around and says, you know, and then he's like, you know what? Stop trying to throw strikeouts. Strikeouts are fascist. Get a ground ball out here. That's more democratic. Which is such a like, where does this like flex in the script come from like that's strikeouts are fascist i like it yeah it's pretty interesting if you don't even let the guy put the ball in play um yeah and there's a lot of like really interesting moments and hang yes i I just think that like tim robbins is such a weird actor oh definitely because he's like have you ever seen that stupid movie bob roberts it's like that fake documentary about Bob Roberts, the pol- like this fake politician played by Tim Robbins, like running for office. No, does he play really dominant again? Ish. He's like playing it for comedy. Like he only has that like weird sort of like high fidelity. Like he's good for a bit, but I don't yeah. think he's good for like the emotional core of this movie. Like if it had been someone who played it a little bit more sort of strayed maybe i don't know you don't think he's good for the emotional core of bull durham yes i don't think he is the emotional core of bull durham but like then what because like kevin costner comes in pretty late to like the exposition of this movie yeah so you think it's all susan sarandon and then like her relationship with the two of them like i don't but it gives her her parts so weird right I think it's Costner and Sarandon. I think that Robbins ends up becoming like the furthest point of the love triangle when he gets sent up to the show. And you have that thing at the end where you see him just kind of repeating the advice that they gave him to the reporter. Right. Can I tell you the thing I love about the triangle? I'll go ahead and tell me, tell me what I really like about this movie. This is a movie about three people who cannot explain themselves to each other. 
I mean, because Tim Robbins is too dumb. He doesn't know what's going on. In his own way, he's blessed with the guilt, the gift of not being self-aware, as Annie says. Annie cannot explain her searching to either of these men because they don't buy into it and they don't want to hear it. And most crucially, I think that Crash cannot explain that he has crippling anxiety. I, what I, the, the, the slow burn that I love in this movie is the fact that he's an alcoholic and it's, Nobody like makes it explicit, but that's right, but scene, he's drinking in every scene. But that yes, but that scene where Nuke comes at the end to tell him I, I made it, I'm going to the show, and he's like drunk in the bar with Sandy Grimes. Um <laughs> and and he's just like, You still don't get it, do you? The only the only difference between th- uh 250 and 300 is 25 at bats. It's one hit a week. He's he keeps telling this kid not to think. But he's too inside his own head to have ever been successful. Right. He's only good at being the best in, like, a not very big pond. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why he's, like, and he, like, went up for, he's got his tragic sort of uh, Moonlight Graham story of only being in the show for, you know, 23 days or whatever it was. Exactly. I love that the movie, though, isn't, like, and this is why Crash is, like, all fucked up. It ju- it's just kind of this slow reveal that Nuke himself never even understands. And then at the end, all they can do is not think and not talk and, and just be. Certainly. I think that's, I think that's very... I mean, it's very wise, but I wonder, like, how intentional that is. Like, there's enough there that, like, y- you explaining it now makes it feel intentional to me. Like, but watching the movie... It's like felt more slapdash. It's kind of the movie itself. Like it has the aesthetic of stupid, you know, and it has like some pretty cheesy music cues, and it like tries to suck you in with the the classic. All three of these movies have like old footage, like over a title (laughs) sequence, to tell you how like great the game of baseball is. Like you have to get that going in. But I think, like, real, the, the litmus test and maybe what has driven Coster to make three of these very similar movies is the fact that he feels that the, that predecessor to it did not capture baseball adequately. Like, this didn't feel like, why would anyone behave this way? Was sort of, like, my question at the end of it. And I don't know if I ever, like, bought it. Okay. Hmm. Well, I think, but I think what's so cool, yeah, maybe that, I like your theory about why he keeps making these movies, but I think what's so great about this one is, like, they might as well just be, like, an unsuccessful rock band touring the South, right? Yeah, that's the thing. And then, it's so funny, like, seeing how Costner and his understanding of baseball sort of politics morph in these characters he plays. Uh-huh. Because, like, there's this funny line, and I mean, not to jump too quickly to this movie, but in For Love of the Game, where he first sleeps... Um, with what's her name? Kelly Preston. With Kelly Preston. And he's like, you're not like a groupie. You don't even look like a groupie. You don't behave like a groupie. And it's I didn't like, treat you like one. It's like, I was in Bull Durham. Like, <laughs> I understand how groupies are treated. Right. Haven't you seen that film? Um, I'm, I'm Billy Chapel. Note my sunglasses. Do we... <laughs> We'll get into... Let's get into Agent Costner's wardrobe in a bit. Um, do we need to talk Costner... A little bit more like Hunter has a sure. theory of Costner, but like, I think I've compared him before to Wahlberg 
in the sense that I think he's at his best when the film has an idea about what to do with him. But if you let him have control of the film, a la Wyatt Earp, his self-concept is nowhere near as interesting as other artists' concept of him. If you're looking for just, like, American sort of, like, pseudo-prestige mainstream cinema, you can, like, put that onto Kevin Costner. But you can't put, like, a three-hour biopic on Kevin Costner. He doesn't have the range to do anything more than, like, you know... Drunk and heartbroken and sober and heartbroken. He's like a painting of an actor. <laughs> right. You know, he, he's definitely in the style. He, he knows how to, like, behave in the style of acting. But I, I doubt if you met him in real life, he would be, like, that much different than the variety of characters he's played over his career, which are all basically the same. Which really, like, what are we saying? He's a great movie star. Like, that's that's what he has, is he just has the requisite charisma. The, the scene at the batting cage with Annie where he just, like, starts, like, hitting him one-handed while he tells her his life philosophy, like, that's that's Tom Cruise. He's a movie star. Oh, yeah. He's, He's got a lot of Daniel confidence. Yeah. He just, like, doesn't have a lot of talent. But he's definitely getting by, like, sort of on the confidence, like, moments like that, or just, like, how realistic I think he looks right. playing baseball. Like, and you get into it a bit with Hunter about, like, the sort of herky-jerky of uh, Tim Robbins. <laughs> right. But, like, when you see him, like, play baseball, in all three of these movies, he's, like, sort of, like, your stereotypical, like, yes, this is what an American ball player, the grace of it. Yes. Like, none of these... None of these, you know, launch angles or anything with this guy. This is all hard. <laughs> and to his credit, he also opens himself up to uh, good chemistry with people. I think he has good chemistry with Tim Robbins. Even as you have the bizarre thing of the, again, I'll go back to the Sandy Grimes bar scene, where they're just talking past each other. Neither of them is willing to understand what the other is saying. But in that scene as actors, and I think the same with Susan Sarandon, like when he's, oh, also great touch. The he's eating post-coitus Wheaties when they're discussing how he'll never make it back to the show. Um, I think he's got good chemistry. Yeah, no, I think he's great with Susan Sarandon because Susan Sarandon can, like, play with him mm-hmm. in, like, funny ways. But I think Tim Robbins is so, like, he's meat, man. He's, like, too out of his element to, right. like, maybe it's out of, like, just sheer reverence for Mr. Costner, but, like, he can't, he can't, like, grab the scene. Like, the scene where... Like, even the punches look very, like, wimpy. You know, when he's like, oh. did you did you punch with your right hand or your left hand? I'm like, terrible he, punch. Yeah, it's like you didn't punch with either. You punched the air and Costner, like, took a, took a dive. Right. You know, just hit the old man, for God's sake. <laughs> um, can I introduce a, a segment I'd like to do for all three of these movies? What's that? Okay, so I don't mean to, to rag on Kevin Costner. Um Yes, that's the whole sheer purpose of this podcast. Perfect. Here we are. Then there's there's a precise moment in all three of these movies where the director's like tin ear for dialogue meets up with Costner's inability to do like a Sorkinsian delivery. Right. Um, and there's like a truly like, what did you just try to say in this movie? And in Bull Durham, the line is, besides, I don't believe in quantum mechanics when it comes to matters of the heart. Yeah. Can't get away with that. Because they're trying to convey this, like, baseball baseball sentimentality mm-hmm. that you either, like, have or maybe don't. I don't think you can, like, teach it in a movie. Like, there are people who like the movie The Natural or, like, like you, Chance, don't like the movie The Natural. 
And I just feel like if you like buy into that, um, like baseball being part of like what it means to be American, I I don't know. I I other but but other than that though, like what what does this movie have? Yeah, I just think it's like an adjacent like kids pool story to like a debaucherous kids pool story to something the big pool the show that we all know about um and i think it's got some funny lines of just like you know a minor league manager saying he says his chakras are jammed yeah <laughs> Which, you can't see out of your you can't breathe out of your eyelids i like this movie um should we do you want really? to turn toward a rating yeah do it all right you're gonna give it a good good aren't you let's figure out what a good good means before we just go handing them out willy-nilly there is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good Good, Bad Bad, Good Bad, and Bad Good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good Movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicolas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad, bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or awards bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China, or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says, But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I am going to give it a good good. Like I talked about, I think that char- the analysis that I felt in that character triangle um, really did it for me. This is a place, I like the hang, it's a place I want to go. I like the story of the the teacher who turns out to be more damaged than the student, but like still has to kind of find his way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying. The, the movie doesn't quite live up to... None of these movies quite live up to that opening montage idea. I think this one is a good-bad. I think you've made me come around on the quality of it, but I still was like... I mean, I'm glad I've seen it now, but I don't think I'll like return to it when I'm like gearing up for the baseball season next year or anything, whereas I may return to another baseball film. 
so then what? Not six months later, Costner's like, we didn't do it right. We got to try again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, this time with a little more prestige, please. And he goes to uh, Philip Alden Robinson. And in 1989, they, they make Field of Dreams together. And this movie sort of presupposes that baseball is magic. Yes. And baseball is all, it's just all Americana rolled in to one. Mm-hmm. And so we open with these like two sort of incompetent hippies living in Iowa. They've like gone to Berkeley together and lived through the 60s and whatever. And they have this daughter and this farm that they're like half trying to, you know, do something with. And her family's out there, the the wife. Um, and yeah, and then one day Kevin Costner's, you know, out tending to his corn and a voice speaks to him and says, if you build it, he will come. Right. And he's like, excuse me. And the voice again, I think the voice is Michael Douglas, right? Oh, I don't know. It sounded, I, I, it's, there's, it's not credited anywhere. Interesting. Apparently there's some mystery around who it is. Anyway, I thought it sounded like Michael Douglas. But he says again, if you build it, he will come. And like then Kevin Costner has this vision of this baseball field on like part of his land. Watching this movie again, like the plot is totally absurd. Yeah, there are like three different acts of magic that must come together. Yeah, so the first act of magic is he builds this baseball field and then... Shoeless Joe Jackson, played by Ray Liotta, who's dead, mind you. Real guy uh, appears out of the corn and, like, starts, like, hanging out. Yeah. And, like, at this also, like, this is going on at the same time where, like, the public schools are trying to ban, like, I guess he's supposed to be, like, a James Baldwin or something type character who has, like, written heavily in the 50s and 60s and was very influential. And they're trying to ban one of his novels and then Kevin Costner realizes that, like, he's got to go to Boston and take this writer. Terrence Mann. To, Terrence Mann, played by um, James Earl Jones, to a baseball game for some reason. Right. But there's the whole Moonlight Graham thing and the hot dog. Yeah, there's so much in this movie. And the people, if yeah. you build it, the, the people will come, Ray. Yeah. So why don't we talk to Hunter Atkins about both Field of Dreams and Bull Durham at this point? Sound all right? Sounds good to me. Relax. All right, don't try to strike everybody out. Strikeouts are boring. Besides that, they're fascist. Throw some ground balls. It's more democratic. Our guest today is a sports reporter for the Houston Chronicle where he regularly writes about the world champion Astros. In fact, he just published, and I was just reading this, the uh, season preview for the upcoming year, which you can read now at HoustonChronicle.com for you non-localized podcast audience. Hunter Atkins, welcome to the show. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. An excellent plug. You've done this before. I Once or twice. Um, so you were gracious enough to join us to talk about Kevin Costner baseball movies. And we're going to focus specifically on Field of Dreams and Bull Durham, but we I haven't we haven't really done any background. You were just nice enough to say yes, so why don't we jump in? What are your general feelings on either of these movies? Where would you most like to start? Do you feel warmly about them? 
I feel yes, very warmly. I am. I feel like a warm bath about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I give the edge to Field of Dreams right off the bat because you can watch it at age, you know, like seven right. and eight, and get all the jokes and get all the references. Bull Durham is naughty. It certainly you know, like is. It is, it, it is naughty. It is raunchy. Kevin Costner is a jerk. Can we can we curse on this or no? Sure, have at it. Oh my God, is he a dick? He He's is such a dick. So, like you know, you got to give the Edge of Field of Dreams for its universality. Yep. Um, yep. And they're also, but 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 they also are must watches for all sports fans. You, you can't the, the idea that they're in 2018, right? You'll you'll meet a young person who hasn't seen The Godfather, hasn't seen Goodfellas, hasn't seen Pulp Fiction, right? Just mm-hmm. like outrageous and but but these are in that genre if you're just a sports fan period you have to see field of dreams yeah have to see bull durham when you're old enough to get all the naughtiness right um so you know they're part of the canon so to speak i think of of sports movies before we jump all the way in can i ask does their canonization does their timelessness does you think it has anything to do with the fact that in neither of the movies does the drama hinge on the outcome of a sporting event yeah, I, like, yes, the reason why this movie is successful because it doesn't have anything to do with baseball. Because baseball is fucking boring. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. The games are three hours long. Right. Uh, television ratings are down. Uh, y- y- you know, no, per- no right-minded person who has a phone in their hand would ever even watch it anymore. So, of course, you have to have uh, the sex of Bull Durham. Mm-hmm. You have to have the sweetness and mystery of Field of Dreams. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the less to do with baseball, frankly, the better these movies are. Like, Moneyball isn't about baseball, obviously. So, right. you know, which, which I'm sure is a discussion for another day. But, but of course, it's inherent that these movies have got to have some kind of thrust as far, far from the game as possible. That could be why we're not discussing for the love of the game quite on the level of these other two. Um, so... Let's get into Costner, because you said it right off the bat. These are in the sports movie canon. If you just walk up to someone on the street and say, hey, baseball movie, I've, you have to imagine that an image of Kevin Costner will flash into their mind first, second, third image. God, what do you if, think? If you say anything to me, Kevin Costner probably <laughs> uh-huh. the first thing. Yeah, what a hunk. Indeed. We, for, we forget how naturally handsome that son of a bitch is. It's really like, true. You know, it, it, I'll tell you what. He occupies a singular space in movie history. I think Tom Hanks comes very close, but not not. It's not the same. Mm-hmm. And it's that Kevin Costner. He all he's so good, and this is not easy to do. He's so good at playing characters that are very earnest. Right. You know that's a tough thing to pull off as a lead of a movie. You know it requires an enormous amount of restraint. You know, like Kevin. There's a reason why all the other Kevin Costner movies are fucking horrible. Yeah, he can't. You know, he's not a great actor. He's not a transformer. He's not. There's no metamorphosis with Kevin Costner. He's really good at playing like an average white American man between the age of thirty and fifty. Uh-huh. So, yeah, like there's. I love. I love in Field of Dreams, and it really is a testament to, like I said, this kind of like singular acting style he has, the measuredness of it, the normalness of it, when all of his interactions with his wife. You know, she is such a, a fiery, incredible, inspiring force, mm-hmm. uh, right? Trying to rally the town and everything. And um, 
that he, he's just he's always he always looks like he, he's sort of you know doesn't know what the hell to do, which I love. You know, it's that not town a, hall meeting especially. Yeah, oh, the best. Yeah, she's kicking the lockers with excitement, and and he's you know perplexed as to how he can make a buck. Um, right. It's great, and and, and he's he's <laughs> good, he's good he's he's really good at getting right to the edge of sadness. You know, like there there mm. are actors. Paul Giamatti and Philip Seymour Hoffman, R.I.P., who have mastered the art of misery. That's right. not what Costner does. He he he's just just at the at the crest of heartbreak before he finds a way to slowly work himself back to a triumphant uh, you know you know return. So he's great and and, and just the perfect foil for. All these other, you know, emphatic and curmudgeon-y or loudmouthed yeah. uh, uh, characters, certainly in Field of Dreams. Now, Bull Durham, he is a great cantankerous, cranky dickhead, which I also right. love. But an earnestness to that too, you know, a guy that simply has put in hard work with no talent. Mm-hmm. As so, you know, Crash will will always will always be in our hearts for for what could have been for him. And and Costner, he just he captures it so 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 authentically. So let's talk about his uh, baseball abilities. He played in high school. He's got it, and I mean, I mean, this this is this could occupy a whole other podcast. But the ratio of actors who are good athletes to ones who are atrocious, it, <laughs> it, the atrocious is so out of proportion. Like Brad Pitt can hardly hold a baseball, uh-huh. much less you know. Play a guy who was a former major league or former minor leaguer right. is outrageous. Um, it, famously, in White Man Can't Jump, it turns out Woody Harrelson is the one who really can ball, and yeah. Wesley Snipes doesn't even know how to put in a little layup. So Costner stands out. I, I mean, I, I think I would say he and Kurt Russell mm. have to be without question the undisputed ath- uh, actor athletes. And people don't think of, of Kurt Russell, but Kurt Russell played, um, I don't know if it was independent ball in El Paso or minor league baseball, but Kurt Russell was right. a fabulous uh, amateur baseball player. So, uh, you know, a little, a little tidbit for the, for those of you out there who didn't know. Uh, yeah, Costner stands alone in that regard. A cannon. Yeah. Oh, and Charlie Sheen, of course, who admitted to doing steroids while filming Major League. And he <laughs> right. actually did pitch, apparently, all of those shots as, as the Wild Thing closer. Yeah. Um, while we're on the subject, can you, there's something with Tim Robbins's delivery. How would you assess that? Because he, of course, plays Nuke in Bull Durham. Well, he's a dummy. I mean, he's supposed <laughs> to, you know, like he's supposed to be. Oh, delivery of pitches. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, apparently, apparently, I think I've heard this. I don't know where I heard this, but by coincidence, I played against his son, in high school basketball. No shit. Yeah. Jack? Jack. Um, I don't remember him playing baseball, but he was a center at the time, uh, a decent basketball player. Not that I was anything special, but I think basketball runs in that family, not baseball. Height uh, definitely it, does. Height definitely does. Jack, of course, being in real life, the, the, son, the, the son of both Tim Robbins and actually Susan Sarandon, which is pretty cool. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you know, a real life baseball betty. And, uh, but, well, what, what's the, what's the problem with Tim Robbins motion? Uh, what are we supposed to break it down? Like we're on fucking ESPN? 
he doesn't have the ball. Yes, that's what I want to do. Is his head weird? Does he hold his head in a weird way? His posture is very awkward. Hunches. He doesn't, you know, compare him with, say, Justin Verlander, who stands every bit of six foot five and change. Right. Um, Noah Syndergaard, six foot six and change. These guys, Garrett Cole, six foot five. These guys look gigantic because they have their, you know, their, their scapula and their shoulder blades uh, pinched back. You know, Tim Robbins is like lurch on the mm-hmm. man. So it doesn't quite look right. You know, it was also a different time. Like it's supposed to capture baseball. I don't know. Do we have a year in that movie? Is it supposed to be contemporary? It seems I, to be very 80s. Yeah, I think it's set in 88, the year it came out. Okay. So then I was going to say, you know, there's like a, there's a, it's a very 80s, 70s motion he has. The swinging, you know, the over the top, the big looping windmill attempt at a delivery. But he just doesn't have the athleticism to make even that look up. Yeah. Uh, but I think posture is where I would start with. Okay. Some- that's interesting nice well i need an expert's take because it didn't look quite doesn't look you know costner is it's so fluid that somebody with an untrained eye like me like there's he just looks right and that's how most people come at these movies i think i think robin's also i mean he looks unathletic he does he's like gumby he's flaky and he's a little he's a little flabby in it as opposed to you know being sinewy which which is very endearing and funny in itself sure but i mean the guy doesn't look like he could throw 100 miles an hour uh, part of the charm of the movie, but but that's you know look, that that's why we're parsing out what is authentic and what is inauthentic right. about these actors. Um, so I wanted to go here, Hunter. What as someone who bring me here? Where are we going? Here, here is um, a question about the romance of baseball as portrayed in Field of Dreams. Um, as somebody who writes about it, you and must hang out with other people who write a about it. A lot of time in cornfields. I spend so much time <laughs> just traipsing through cornfields looking for my dad. Do you you go uh, to Iowa City for reasons you can't even understand? Usually for ayahuasca, but yes. Gotcha. Um, That's why I end up in the cornfields. What's the appetite or lack thereof for this sort of like age-old, waxing poetic, smell of the grass, boys of summer... Uh, I, you know, why, why is it that we're nostalgic for, for the baseball's pastime? Because it was the game that our great grandfathers and grandfathers loved. It was, you know, who by and large probably were racist, but you know, it starts with them. That's where the tradition began. So any kind of experience we have with it today is going to have a through line back to, you know, our older relatives. It's not like they've been watching Sean White, the flying tomato at the mm-hmm. Olympics, right. right? You know, it is old time. It's where, you know, we have all the old footage of, of Walter Train John, Big Train Johnson and all that stuff. It has nostalgia built into it simply because by its nature, it's been around for 140 to 50 years. Um, so there's, there's that. Um, I guess also the ethereal nature of the field. Sure, you know what I'm sure. saying? Like, to put a field in a cornfield, I, I don't see us doing that with basketball, right? Basketball is the asphalt game. Mm-hmm. Football, I guess you could do it, but it's not in Iowa country. It doesn't, it's not, it, football has a different kind of Americana, kind of an ugly Americana, frankly, right? Rooted, yes. in, the, rooted in the deep south, it's, a, south, it's about grit. It's a, it's, yeah, it's called war in another form. Baseball is just so cuddly and pleasant, isn't it? Absolutely, it's a pastime. Yeah, until that girl chokes on that hot dog and almost dies. <laughs> I, I also think you couldn't make 
any these movies today because of this nature, this idea that you know, like the style, the the romanticism over baseball is, I think, is gone. There mm-hmm. was because of steroids, because it's just simply not nearly so cool of a sport as the NBA has become, right. as, as 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 football continues to be. So to make a movie built off of the mystique, the warmness, the romance, you couldn't do it today. I and I guarantee there will be a remake of The Natural at some point, and we will all vomit. It just you probably you can't get away with it, you know. We're, 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 we're we've lost our appreciation, not our appreciation. We've lost our want for innocence in these movies. I think. Mm. I think that we we do need to to venerate a sports movie. It has to it has to feel like the stakes have to be much much higher. It has to be grittier. It has to be more dramatic. Yeah, uh, it can't be quaint. So so you know that's why I think that it's gone the way of the dodo. Interesting. Um, as we transition a little bit to Bull Durham, maybe I can get us in with this. Do you have a favorite baseball axiom, observation, quote that comes from either of these movies? Anything come to mind? Oh, boy. I mean, I think every interaction, uh, I love I love Susan Sarandon. I, how do we not, right? We're all in love with her. Um, I, don't, I can't remember anything specifically, but I, but I wanted to say this, that another, you know, if this were today, she would be considered an Instagram hoe. That's exactly right. Like slipping into the DMs of uh, of Crash and mm-hmm. uh, of uh, and of Nuke. Right. Uh, so another bit of romance that we've lost. Sure. You know, to, to the internet age. Um, I just I, I I love that she controls the show. I I, I will say I the la- there need there needed to be a scene. That focuses more, I think, from a female perspective. I'm, I'm not afraid to say this on the appreciation of men in baseball pants. This is a big <laughs> that's great, yeah. Baseball butts are like if they're their own meme. You know, again, that <laughs> if the movie was made today, uh-huh. you know, girls would say hashtag baseball butt. Sure, but you know, there is the, like we we could use a little bit more of that. Even I would appreciate that. You know, let's have you know a nice zoom in on on you know one of these you know firm rear ends. And these, you know, these uh, well-fitting white pants, it's what the ladies pay to see, my friend. That's where the baseball Bettydom, you know, begins. It's where the baseball Bettydom begins with the butts. Maybe not Tim Robbins' butt, as previously discussed. Well, you know, a little scrawny, but you know what? <laughs> you get the pants tight enough. Uh, sure. You know, it'll, it'll, look, it'll, it'll be bubbly, I'm sure. Got to get the uniform to do the work. Yeah. Um, Next on hot baseball butt talk. Right. <laughs> this is a completely rebranded podcast now. Um so, okay, here's something I wanted to get into. Because um, weirdly, I just heard you talk on a podcast. I Sorry, I cannot remember the name, but uh, about Garrett Cole, because he just arrived at the Astros in the offseason, right? Yes, I do a, a podcast called The Weekly Brew. Here That's, in- right. That's right. That's um, right. And I was struck by listening to you talk about how Cole is an almost singular figure because he, you talk about him trying to see the fourth dimension of pitches, how he does not shy away from thinking about, or He's maybe, yeah. yeah, or even overthinking his game. And that seemed like such an interesting push-pull in Bull Durham about don't think about it, don't think about it. But someone like Crash even struggles himself not to do that. So what's that push-pull like in, among real-life players? Oh, I didn't, I didn't see you going there. Um... Yeah, I I, th- I mean, more and more, 
this is this is kind of a millennial internet age thing. It's a data driven thing because mm-hmm. baseball now has more data than any other sport, um, like it, voluminously to to the nth degree in the fourth dimension, mm-hmm. uh, as we mentioned before, that pitchers are actually much more cerebral and clinging to information than before. Sure. I think that these guys actually are better off and embracing of, of in, an intellectual streak that had not existed before them. Like on the Astros, for instance, Garrett Cole, who went to UCLA, by the way, um, Justin Verlander and Lance McCullers. To hear these guys, these three guys talk about pitching, it's like, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson cracking wise about astrophysics. They mm-hmm. are just so intense and so minute with their observations that I think that probably defines young athletes more. Okay. Um, there still are guys, almost all of them relievers, I should say, who throw the crap out of the ball, who still, you know, they get on the mound, they look at the catcher, whatever the catcher signals, they nod and pitch because that's easier for them. But, but no, I, I, it, there's much less push and pull. There is, there is a lot more, you know, pitching with cerebrality. There's no doubt that Nuke would get Tommy John surgery today. Could he come back from it? I don't know. He's got such shitty mechanics. Yeah. Probably not. Um, he'd have to convert into some hard-throwing reliever. And then how long could he even last? You know, it's the, the truth for all these baseball players in these movies. Eh, they never stood a chance. They'll never be that good. I mean, I, I, that is kind of what I love about Bull Durham, though, is it's on such a small stage. It's not bound to prestige with a real-life parallel, you know? Well, I, so so years ago, I interviewed Rob Shelton, who who wrote the movie, and he played. He was a second baseman in the Orioles system. So, also the authentic the authenticity of Bull Durham comes from him. You know, uh, wasting hours on the bus ride, having bullshit mm. conversations, failing and failing and failing. Um, so of, of course, that's what we love about that movie. That's what makes it authentic. It's also again, it's why we really couldn't have it today. Like the the prototypical sports movie. Today, I gotta say, is like is Creed. So Creed, yeah. Creed has such continuous built-in drama, uh-huh. and it's also very self-referential, which we like today. We like a, we like a meta element. We like a movie that's self-aware. Um, it's got diversity. It's got youth. It's got sex. It's got you know like all this all this other stuff that it, 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 the movie is a slam dunk competition. Is what it is. <laughs> that's what we uh-huh. want out of our movie, out of our sports movies now. You know, Bull Durham. What what's the uh, what is the achievement in the vacuum of the movie where you know one guy gets the girl? I, like I don't I don't you know what I'm saying like I'm not sure what sadly movies now have to be so clear with their message and their direction right. and their first act, their th- second act and their third act. And the, and the, 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 um, the classic driving force of all screenwriting is quote, raise the stakes. Mm-hmm. There has to be when we raise the stakes. Well, today it's like every 17 minutes we have to raise the stakes with these fucking movies. Right. Right. Well, I'm not sure what stakes are. there. It's true. It's really a movie that, much like some kind of you know baseball midway through 162 game season it's just kind of ambling toward its end it's yes. great in that way i do want to i do want to finish with i wonder how well it has aged and if it's still as heartwarming to you the the great final line of uh field of dreams 
right? So Costner, he, he sees his dad finish the game, the ghost of, of his father. Oh, who sure, we, don't oh, know, sure. we don't know if he's, I guess it's not the final line. It's one of the final lines. Right. We don't know if he's really a ghost. We can't tell at this point what's real and what's not. And as his dad is about to join the other ghosts and head and disappear into the cornfields, Costner stops and he says, Dad, you want to have a catch? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, I, I get, I, I I am such a cynic and an asshole. I'm not, I, I have loved that line for so long. I yeah. am not sure it holds up anymore. It's a bit, it's a bit much, you know? I almost wonder if they could have found a way. Like, I, I was thinking, I was thinking about this recently. Like, what if the moment instead, it's the, he doesn't complete the line. Uh-huh. What, if, what if Costner just says, dad, and his dad turns around. And when his dad turns around, he sees that Costner is, has a glove on Ooh. and in Costner's right hand, he kind of motions with the ball. Like he holds it up uh-huh. and gives, and just gives him a look. And, yeah. and, and his dad then flips him off and says, go fuck yourself. <laughs> That's 2018 son. Yeah. I have whoring to do from the 1910s and twenties. Right. Any father at that time took time to play catch. They were busy drinking and whoring. That's that's obviously the message I was going for. That's right. the way the movie should have ended. Yeah. That's an interesting... I do think that you already brought up how Costner is this quintessentially earnest performer. And Field of Dreams is a movie that is trying to find the outer limit. Or, you know, what is the <laughs> what is the corn-made barrier between something mm. nice and something very corny? Um, and I think it finds it in the end. Well done. Hashtag very corny. Yes. There we go. Um, well, Hunter, thanks so much for your time, man. I appreciate the talk. Anytime. Ray, people will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course... We won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. For it is money they have and peace they like. Ray, just sign the papers. And they'll walk out to the bleachers. Sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. They'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines where they sat when they were children and cheered their heroes and they'll watch the game and it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters the memories will be so thick that I have to brush them away from their faces what first my overarching you want my overarching theory about why Field of Dreams is way better than I remember it or do you want the line that Kevin Costner can't quite pull off uh, start with the good news and then take me to the bad news. Okay. So I texted you and it's just was nice. Cause how many times on this show are we like, I saw this when I was 17 and I liked it. And now I saw it as an adult and I did not <laughs> because right. like I was an idiot and this movie's not that good. This movie I could have sworn was going to be cheese ball as heck. And I, I fell in love all over again. Um, because they're because this movie's just much more specific than I remember it. These 60s, 60s kids now in 1989 kind of dealing with the, you know, the fantasy that they half lived through and half lost, right? 
Yes. And then to bring this like critically acclaimed reclusive psychonaut into the mix is really something as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's beautifully cast. Yes. And the story's like enough to keep it moving, but like sort of obscure enough to keep it sort of fascinating. Right. And yeah. And I was, so if I can paint a picture for you here, I was watching this movie on United's entertainment app on my phone, like in one of the more sort of turbulent flights I've taken in the last few years. Okay. And I'm just like sitting there being like, maybe I'm going to die here or like, and people are like getting sick around me. And then like, there's James Earl Jones being like, you know, people will come, Ray. People will <laughs> most definitely come. Um, the one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Right. And I was like, I'll be fine. <laughs> At least he died the way he lived, watching Field of Dreams. Yes, indeed. I can't say enough, too, about just this movie letting James Earl Jones have a real part where he gets to like talk and build a character and have fun and act and react and overreact is so, I mean, when James Earl Jones shows up in movies, it's to connote authority and then that's it. Right. But when he goes, when he's just like interviewing people in that bar in Chisel, Minnesota, like, that's great. Like, I don't think anyone has ever honestly treated him with so much humanity as to give him leeway that you would give, like, the third build character in a road movie like this. There's not only, like, an interesting sort of acting spark about it, there's an interesting sort of social and racial comment that's being made by, like, a lot of it, too, about, like, you know, Bull Durham is essentially, like, this is what white people think about baseball. And then Field of Dreams comes back and sort of has a more nuanced interpretation of baseball that's, like, not all sentimental. There's, like, flaws to it, too. Right. And it's a more heartbreaking sort of, you know, parable about the American dream, less a model for the American dream. I, that's a good way to put it, a nice distinction to make. Because I think the other thing for me was that, like, again, I was expecting this to be just, you know, the almost Oscar-winning bait to baseball. But I think what makes this movie so great, I mean, the atmosphere of baseball is great. I still love that. But really, it's a fantasy about the 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 impossibility that anyone would ever come along with you on your esoteric dreams. And Ray Kinsella keeps getting people to come along with him. And, and in some ways, I think we all want to be known on that level of what is only happening in our mind. Like, we all kind of yearn for that, but, like, we'll never get it. We'll never get... You'll never get your wife and daughter to just, like, listen to random baseball stats and let you build a field. You'll never get your hero to come along on a road trip with you. Like, the fantasy here is one of, like, of recompense and self-fulfillment that no one actually gets. Sure. And then the movie is also making the case for if baseball can successfully accomplish the sort of self-seriousness with which we treat it, then any of our foolish dreams could be realized. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of, because people will come. Like, why do we have, like, why are these guys traded from these different organizations for millions of dollars, like, f- to play a game? Right. It's like, well, the answer is people will come. People will most definitely come. And, like, that is sort of an interesting thing. Like, the fact that baseball works 
is saying that America could work or that our lives could work as the way we know them. And that's sort of gratifying in a way that even though it's cheesy, it doesn't make it any less wrong. Right. I really like this is now the second female lead with the character named Annie. Yeah, played by who? Amy Madigan? Yes. And she's great, too. She's just a just a ball of fire there. I think her little speech about, like, why we shouldn't ban books is, like, pretty moving. Yeah. Um, and she seems like a good model for, like, a mother. Like, she's not too overbearing, but she also, like, of course, deeply loves her daughter. She works well with Costner, too, because, like, she... Her self-assurance, like, fills the void of, like, his moon-faced obliviousness that sets in as he starts hearing more and more voices. Right. Like, when they're at the town hall meeting and she's just like, Annie, Annie, like, he's a six-year-old, like, we have to go. And she's just like, I just halted the tide of neo-fascism in America. What did you do? Right. (laughs) It's great. I think this movie's uh, unmistakably good, good. I would agree. Well, I was going to say the other upside of this movie is that it's so short, you, like... You don't have to, like, hold up too much of, a, like, a microscope to it mm-hmm. in that, like, if you really unpacked it or, like, it was, like, maybe half an hour longer, it'd be like, what? <laughs> what is happening here? Like, yeah, no doubt. Like, Graham is the two of these guys and then he, we needed him because of the hot dog? Right. What? That's what kept him from being a baseball player? It is very well paced, though. You're right. Yeah. It's true. Before you even can ask the question of what, it like gets you to something completely, completely new. And I mean, it's got Burt fucking Lancaster in it. Come on. It's like yeah. one of the 10 biggest stars of the 60s is like in this movie as an old man saying, Alicia will get to thinking I've got a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a good, I like the way he delivers. Yeah, they were like, Bert, can you come on the set for a few days and try your best Dick Van Dyke? And he was like, right. I'll try that, yes. I'll do it f- for two Yankees tickets. <laughs> you have to slip them right into my pocket now. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm going to give it a good good to, uh, you know, a couple marks off for lines like, heaven is the place where dreams come true, which are just Coldplay lyrics, I think. Um, yeah. Wait, what's the line that you had that oh. Kevin Costner can't quite deliver? The line that Kevin Costner can't get out is um, when he's walking toward his dad and you have you have him like with the perfect Kevin Costner wonderment face going, dad, that's all you need. And then he's like narrating his walk up and he says, I only saw him years later when he was worn down by life. Like... We got to can it with the third person about somebody who's right there and you're about to talk to. That's pretty funny. Can I ask you a question as we transition here to the for the love of the game? What do I want? Dog and a beer. Is Oh yeah, dog and a beer. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that all the costumes for this movie are just the same set of like white and blue Oxford shirts with like pleated khakis hundred percent for Kevin Costner. Like yeah. he's wearing the same clothing like throughout these movies. And it's so like, it's so odd having watched all three of these movies, like pretty close together. Right. That it's like, you're just, you're wearing that shirt from that other scene, but I feel like <laughs> the scene is not from the same movie. It's a little uncanny. It is kind of uncanny. But there are some great, like, billowy blue and white 
button down Oxford shirts and some like, you know, twice, if not triple pleated, you know, pleated or uh, cuffed khakis. Yes. In there. <laughs> Very cuffed. Um, should we get to for love of the game? I would love nothing more. Okay. So this is 99. It's Sam Raimi. Costner has not, it was a hell of a hot streak. If you go untouchables, bull Durham, field of dreams, JFK, the bodyguard, like doesn't get much hotter than that on a five year run. But, but after 99, you know, you've done Waterworld, you've done The Postman. Oh, and I forgot Dances with Wolves was in that run, too. Jesus. Yeah. Um, Which he directed, didn't he? Indeed. So this is like later Costner. We're getting it, you know, he's just like a little thinner on top. He's a little paunchier. He can right. still fucking throw a baseball low. Yeah. Do you think that this movie, like, doesn't have a script? It just has the character named Billy Chapel working <laughs> for it? Like, that's where they started, right? Yeah. And maybe they the casting like, of John C. Riley as Gus the Catcher is pretty pitch perfect. Yeah. That's the that's what's... Okay, we'll get into this movie. So, Billy, the, the for love of the... What did you call it? The for love of the game? <laughs> for love of game? Yeah. Um, is about this, what, 20, 18, 20-year 20 veteran, Billy Chapel, who's always pitched for the Detroit Tigers. Yeah. Um, is having like a really shitty day. His like sort of off again, on again girlfriend like didn't show up to their romantic rendezvous. And then Brian Cox is like a, or a an owner of a baseball team, like comes into his like unbelievable hotel suite <laughs> and is just like, hey, I meant to tell you, I over the last 24 hours have concluded a multi-billion dollar deal that no one's heard about and have sold the Detroit Tigers. And as we were sitting in the conference room signing this huge contract that everyone would have fucking known about for weeks, um, they said under their breath, the first thing we're doing is we're designating him for assignment or something or trading him elsewhere to, to San Francisco, I think they say. That's right. And so, and Billy has to pitch that day. So then we see his like final start as it's the last day of the season and his final start of the last day of the season. And the movie's cut up between his final outing and everything that's led up to his life right now. (laughs) Billy Chapel likes to think about everything that's led up to this moment in his (laughs) life before he pitches. Look out, man. How you doing, Ace? Anybody been on base? Nobody. Nobody? This I ain't seen much of. Me neither. Chappie? I never have. What's the matter? I don't know if I have anything left. Because it's going for a certain level of, like, verisimilitude, right? You're in the old Yankee Stadium. You've clearly got the MLB on for using the real jersey. you got Vin Scully in the booth. With that guy who got, like, fired for saying something, like, anti-Mexican once. Steve Lyons. I don't know who that is. Shows him right, though. Right. And then who else is in this? Um... 
Oh, they get uh, John Sterling from WCBS, who does the actual Yankees call to be the guy in the taxi in the radio. Oh. Like, this movie's going for a lot, but it also has, like, zero sense of humor. Right. And it, like, doesn't understand... Like, it because it is trying to be so, like, realistic, it also isn't, like... So the guy's going through, like, I can name every number you know, going up to a hundred of a Yankee or whatever. Right. And he gets to two. The movie was released in 1999. And he doesn't mention Derek fucking Jeter, <laughs> you know, like yeah. how, like w- when did like the real world end and like this movie's universe begin? This is a good question. Even the Wikipedia page has a fact versus fiction section, which prompted <laughs> me to say like, it's why it's all fiction. What are you talking about? But if you, in case you're wondering what's in there, it's just like no Tigers pitcher has ever pitched a perfect game. It's just like, yeah, but but Billy Chappell's not real, right? Um, yeah, and and then it quickly unfolds that like Billy Chappell's like working on a perfect game. Oh yeah, and in that he's also had like a relationship with Kelly Preston in which he's been like pretty much a huge tool the whole time. More or less. And more or less without, I think him as a character and the movie as like an artistic medium realizing fully. Yeah. There's some things where it's like, Hey, when you cut your hand off, maybe you shouldn't have said, call the athletic trainer first. He's the most (laughs) important person to me right now. But also, like, isn't it weird that he, like, picked up her daughter when they haven't spoken in six months? Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, and then he, you also have, like, these weird anecdotal moments where Billy's, like, also going through his career and his relationship with his father and, like, the other players both on his team and, like, on the opposing team, which is the Yankees. Yeah, like Davis Birch. Davis Birch, who, like, once he didn't really help move and thus <laughs> felt, like, very emotionally attached to. Right. I mean, it, it's it's just, like, ticking boxes for 90s cliches. With Like, first of all, it steals the Armageddon walk-up with the whole team to start the movie. Then, mm-hmm. in one of Noah's favorite 90s cliches, it pays a bunch of money to license a 50s crooner song, Summer Wind, while we pan over the New York City skyline. And then we just get yeah. into, like, a... I think like a fairly interesting sports movie game intercut with sometimes like 30 minute digressions of Kelly Preston, like being treated very horribly by the script. Yes, that's totally true. Can I like, I would was just doing a little research about this movie and apparently like it was conceived as like a much sort of darker adult drama and then the studio saw it and was like, this needs to be a family movie. And most notably, they made them cut out some full frontal Kevin Costner nudity. Oh. Because the studio, I guess, when they were getting feedback from the movie, they were like, we don't understand the part where we see Kevin <laughs> Costner fully naked. What's not to understand? Anyway. But so, like... This movie just, like, cuts to the biggest sort of most digestible emotional moments. And, like, maybe there's a richer sort of director's cut of this movie out there somewhere. It's already two hours and 20 minutes. I know. I really doubt it. Um, Yeah, this movie, like, maybe if it had been let to, like, be its weird self, there would have been more, like, watchability to it. But I think ultimately, like, what you have here is, like, a, a... 
run of the mill like eighties holdover rom com where like the man's goals are the only thing that's important to the narrative and the woman has no agency other than like compromising her own goals to like watch the man succeed. Right. She literally doesn't get on a plane so she can watch the end of the game he's pitching. Yes. Yeah, it's a movie that has no self-awareness around the fact that it's like not cool that he asked her on a first date, which was to sit with strangers while he pitched for four hours. I mean, on a baseball performance level, this could be his best of the three. He is... I've heard J.K. Simmons talk about this recently, like, his arm is about to come off. Like, he threw every single one of those pitches... Yeah. And like there I don't think there's any chicanery with cutting around the the balls versus the strikes. Like it's a great athletic performance. Sure. It's physically astounding. Um and I really liked some of the technical choices that are just like so weird that you kind of get them like the uh That's Raimi for the, you. Yeah, like the engage the mechanism. Right. Yeah. Uh, like he just like that's like a mantra he has to make all like the crowd goes silent but when he's too tired like it doesn't work anymore right and it's like you don't need to explain that it's like you're just you know that your focus just like goes down when you're tired you know and you just like there's something about the cinematography that like looks painful at a point like maybe it's the sound or something yeah the sound is very like well done in this movie like the crack of the bats and like the the ball hitting the glove and going through the air to give you a sense of the speed of it and then his arm kind of like getting kind of like you know metal on metal like by the end of it yeah you can feel the like uh the bolts from some 10 year old surgery yeah, and you know that like, I and mean, there's that like great moment where he's like, he has to throw a curveball, like he's just throwing like straight heat for like about three batters now, and he's like, this one's gonna hurt, and then you just hear him like just like moan as he like throws this like beautiful curveball, which again appears to be Kevin Costner throwing his curveball, right. But see, that's what's interesting about this movie. What I don't find interesting is like the like easy cliches and like the easy plot moves and the fact that like this guy's life as like a dick is so predictably like lonely. Right. Like I don't care that he's like I just don't care about like a rich, lonely guy who abuses women and is finally like run out of gas, so he's settling for the affair that he's had most recently to be like his meaning now. Like that doesn't do anything for me emotionally. If they had made him a more interesting character, then I think you have an interesting structure for a movie. That's very astute. Like what if you instead took the structure and did like a definitely maybe where he had, you know, you do a 10 minute snapshot of his time with three different women and each one like, you know, doesn't work out to let you know that, like, the only thing Billy Chappell loves is the game. Right. For love of the game. And then, like, also that, like, contrived thing about, like, he needs to decide today, like, whether or not he's going to retire or, like, not retire was so stupid. Right. You know, it's just like... and it doesn't speak to, like, what's interesting. It, it didn't use baseball, like, well. Like, it's not football. It's not all or nothing, like, every week. Like, this game is about time and about, like, consistency. It's not about just, like, the one-night kind of thing. Um, yeah, so this movie is a bad, bad. 
I I did get some like kind of fun out of it. There are moments of like confidence that this movie has that I found kind of hysterical. Like Vin Scully being like, and I saw it was here the day Don Larson and underneath Vin Scully like waxing poetic about Don Larson comes like moments that we share. Da, 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 and it like gets into against the wind, which is just yeah. like, Raimi, you, I mean, kudos for believing you can do anything, but like, this is not working. I like the Vin Scully um, moment where he's like, he, he goes on this like super strained metaphor for about 30 seconds that lands on the line of like, it's almost as if he's pitching against time itself, <laughs> begging the sun not to set to give us one more day of summer. And it's like, okay, Scully, like, give me a break. I liked it. That's funny. What's the Kevin Costner line that he can't quite land? Oh, bless you for remembering. In this one, it is, Annie, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I said that day at the condo. (laughs) I remember that line of like, why was it condo? (laughs) I'm sorry for the words that I said at the condominium that day. You and I in the foyer. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry for how callous I was in that apartment that we lease on a two-year basis. <laughs> you know, like, what was the what was the thinking there? Anyway, thank you for remembering. That's great. What do you rate this movie? <laughs> I said the condo. I think this movie is um, bad good. Oh, wow. Charity. I think there's, like, enough, like, good... If you're, like, a baseball person, there's enough, like, good, like for love of the game baseball things in there that are cute, but like, it's not a good movie, but there's like a lot of talent on screen too. I think that uh, John C. Riley is pretty good. I think that the 12 hours that Brian Cox put into the production of this movie are pretty good. Billy, I'm sorry to tell you that the proverbial dot com boomed last night. <laughs> yeah. And Jenna Malone's not bad. Um, JK doing his best Jim Leland. Yeah, there's some pretty funny, uh, you know, guys without lines who Kevin Costner's just talking to and sort of the abstract. I think, yeah, bad good for me. Got me into the baseball mood. I don't disagree with those last points you made. I just don't think that makes a two hour, 20 minute movie watchable. Ooh, is it that long? Yeah, 217. Ugh. (laughs) That's brutal. Let me hit you... With perhaps more interesting baseball question. Who Please. is Billy Chappell? Who's the analog? Oh, I thought he was like a Greg Maddox. That's it. I was thinking him or Glavin, maybe. That's the thing. Like the, He's a dying breed of these franchise pitchers. Yeah. That just don't exist any. I mean, franchise hitters are sort of more of the time period. But like a franchise pitcher, I couldn't. Can you name anyone from like the present? Maybe if, um, like, Justin Verlander hadn't been traded. Right, right. But the point is that he was. (laughs) He was traded and didn't... Do you think he watched For Love of the Game and was just like, I'm not... I'm actually going to go play for Houston and, like, be competitive in a World Series. I'm not going 8 and 11 so I can throw my arm out when I'm 41 on one day. Um, But happy baseball to you, sir. I know that opening night is a big day for you each year. Oh, I go nuts for baseball. That is, I mean, other than Judaism, is one of my religions, akin to Susan Sarandon. 
And I'm doing some, uh, some fantasy this year too. So I'm pretty excited to have that commence. You've never done uh, it. I've never done oh, well, fantasy enjoy. of any You're kind. Have a great time. I'm probably going to bitch about it in the weeks to come. Please bring it on. All right. Well, I'm going to go watch a bunch of movies where almost 18 year olds, uh, just stick it to grown men. Yeah. We're banking up some episodes here. Uh, so we can, so I can go on a trip and we can put out put out one more show. Uh, but thank you to Hunter Atkins, thank you to you Noah, and thank you to you listeners for hanging out and sticking around. As always, you can find the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Overcast. It's on Google Play if for some reason you listen to your music or podcast that way. And I just submitted it on Spotify, so hopefully it'll be up there and uh, maybe by the time you're hearing this. But uh, Noah, pleasure as always, my friend. Sir, uh, what a great time. It's the most wonderful time of the year, in my opinion. Well, the NBA playoffs are coming up, so I agree, but just for different reasons. Oh, that six-month window of the NBA playoffs is about to open? Perfect. (laughs) Well, for love of the cast, I bid you adieu. See you later, buddy. Because of all the stress, yeah. When they get bullied, try a little tenderness, yeah. Stop it.